Let's go ahead and open in a word of prayer, and uh, then we shall get started. Heavenly Father, tonight again, we are so very thankful for your word. We're so very thankful for the, for the wonderful things that Pastor has stated and, and how clear and how concise the word is. It's good when we don't have to make things up, Father. It's good when we don't have to try and defend what we've said. It's good when we're not the person whose name is on the line. It's your word, Father. And if people don't like what your word says, they, they can try to argue with us, but we can't argue. All we can do is say, this is what your word says, Father. You need to talk to the Father about it. And of course, Father, you're not going to listen to the, the, the foolishness of humans. You're not going to listen to people who don't like what you've had to say. If, if someone's a born-again believer, Father, they need to be obedient to the word and they need to adjust their, word, their lives to the word and not attempt to try and twist the word to their liking. And Father, we know that's true today. That's why people allegorize Scripture, because they want it to fit their preconceptions. And Father, may we never be guilty of that. Father, bless in this as we see these things. May we realize by looking at these things, just as a quick overview of how much better we have it than Israel had it. It's so simple to see when we just go through these things. And even in the things we say, it's what we don't say that is important. It's we don't say that they had the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We don't say they were walking by the Spirit. We don't say they overcame the flesh or the Satan or the world system. We don't say any of those things because they didn't do it. And that tells us a whole lot right there too, Father. So may these things be beneficial to us and may we realize that there still is important things to learn. We wouldn't understand a lot about grace if we didn't have law to contrast it with. Blessed in this time, now we ask in our Savior's name. Amen. And that's one of the things I think that is the most important is you don't appreciate what you have until you know what they had. And it's a case of what Pastor was saying is very much a, when I did the Bible conference paper and it was based on a, it was a rework and a, a, an abbreviation and a, and a work of something I had done earlier back at, uh, at the Theological Forum in Forest Grove, I did one I called Something Good. And that's what the Old Testament believer would be. They had something good. But the comparative, we have something better. So we would never say, and Pastor was not saying that what they, in fact, he made a point that he was not saying that what they had wasn't good. But we just have something better. And so good is, good is fine, but better is better. Well, we're coming tonight to Jeremiah, Lamentations, and Ezekiel. So we have two major prophets and fortunately, uh, we get a sort of a break in between because Lamentations is a shorter book. So we start with this man, Jeremiah. Now here's, each one of these prophets, there's, there's so many unique things about them all, and we, we struggle to try and find a way to get everything in that is of importance, importance to us. But let's start by looking, and, and so you can look at page 20. Now, page, so I said page 21 picks up, actually, and the last, uh, well, 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 we'll, we'll stumble through it. You'll see in a moment. So Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. Jeremiah ministered in the late history of the southern kingdom. His ministry spanned from about 650 to about 582. Now, those dates may ring a bell with you because the city of Jerusalem was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar 586. And so he just, uh, a few years beyond this, Jeremiah continues. So this man had about a 40-year ministry. And he was a contemporary of Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. And he, although he was also a contemporary of Daniel and Ezekiel, it's highly unlikely he knew either one of them personally because Ezekiel and Daniel both wrote after they were deported in, in Babylon. So now what is to me is interesting is that Jeremiah witnessed 
Two invasions by Nebuchadnezzar and the, de- and the deportation of many talented people, many of their leaders, their best artisans, craftsmen, uh, the best of their military, and uh, they took those all out. And yet what Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet about is when he witnessed the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. That was what really got him. And, and that might sound strange in a way, but that's his hometown. That's, that, that's, that's the capital of the place that he loved. And so... He, uh, he was the one that wrote Lamentations, his great sorrow. I mean, you see elements of his sorrow, but when you read the book of Lamentations, there is, you, you talk about emotion in the Old Testament. That is probably, Lamentations is probably the most single emotional book. It is almost nothing but emotion. And we'll see in a moment, there's, there are a couple bright spots in it anyway. Now, he was a priest by birth, we know from Jeremiah 1.1, 1, 1, but it doesn't appear that he has served in the temple at Jerusalem. Given the reputation that he developed as a prophet, I think it's highly unlikely that he would have been allowed to serve, even though he was a priest and would have been eligible or should have been. Now, the book of, uh, of Jeremiah is not in chronological order, and it does require some attention. There's going to be some flashbacks that I'm going to try not to miss, because there are, several, there are two very important flashbacks that really show you something that you need to see. Both of them relate directly to us in some way or in our understanding of, of Christ and his ministry. And, and one of them, well, one is that, and the other shows just how contemptible these kings were. When it says they were evil kings, how bad were they? Well, we'll see. One of them was pretty bad. So, the, Jeremiah's ministry began in the 13th year of Josiah. Now, that, how we come up with 40 years is the 13th year of Josiah. Josiah had 18 more years after that. So you had 18 years under Josiah, and then you have Zedekiah had 11 years, and, it, and you also, I didn't have, you had Jehoiakim and, and Zedekiah both had 11 years. So you had 22 years between those two men, and a few months with the others, with Jeconiah. And, but you have 22 years for those, and then 18 years under, under Josiah, so you have 40 years. Now, one thing we know about this man is that this is, the, uh, Jeremiah is, Probably, I would say, one of the more, more emotional, if not the most emotional single prophet. You see a lot more emotion in this man than you see in almost anybody else. You, you see it in a lot of ways. And it's, it's, not, it's not hard to understand because you'll notice in, the thir- in our fourth paragraph down, which is actually on the next page too. We'll skip to the next page when we start looking at the outline. But so Jeremiah's ministry was met with an intense opposition. So much so the Lord ensured Jeremiah twice in his calling, that he would protect the prophet. Now, when he called him two times in that same calling, he said that he would protect him. Now, that should tell you something. Why would God tell him that twice? Probably because Jeremiah knew his people enough at this point to know they weren't going to like what he had to say. They were not going to like what he had to say. And so, God even told him he was going to make him a brazen wall. And uh, though, now listen to this, though Jeremiah received death threats. Now you notice we have in here at least three passages where he is at least three times. Now I don't know of any other prophet. This is another unique point of his. He's the only man that we have recorded death threats. Now we know that, that many of the prophets were killed. Tradition says Isaiah was sawn asunder. But if you read 66 chapters in Isaiah, you don't see him being threatened with death. I, I, don't, I didn't read it. Now I might have missed something. But if you go back, I don't think you'll find him. But here Jeremiah three times is going to tell you that he is met with death and he's going to cry out to, to God over that. They weren't carried out. And, and Jeremiah was imprisoned the tenth year of Zedekiah and he remained there till the destruction of Jerusalem. Now we have some references by that. So this man had a lot of, of difficulty in his life. Now, some things we need to say about him. Well, 
His call was rather interesting because when you look at his call in the first chapter, uh, let's go ahead and turn to Jeremiah chapter 1. Jeremiah's call is, is different. Every, every man's call is different. And that's one of the things, by the way, that, uh, that uh, we always should remember. No two people ever get saved the same way. Did you know that? The events that brought Lynn and Kevin and Miss J and my wife, Joyce, Carl, they were all different. I'll, I'll, I'll lay odds nobody got saved under the same circumstances with the same way as I did. So uh, let's, not, let's not be too surprised that Jeremiah's call is going to be a little bit different. So when he's called, it's interesting that uh, I remember Moses. Moses did everything he could think of to get out of being called to be the leader of Israel. And God got angry with him. It says, you go back in, in, in Exodus 3 and 4, you'll find God got flat out angry with him for it. And it got so bad that he says, okay, you say you can't speak, Aaron's going to do it. But you know what's funny? If you look at most of, this, uh, most of the writings in the Pentateuch, who was doing most of the speaking? Was it Aaron that did most of it? It was all Moses. So God gave him that at first, and it, it didn't seem like he really needed it, and it seems like it kind of faded away, and Moses kind of... Well, he didn't say anything about it, I'm sure. But when you look at this in verse, uh, verse 4 of Jeremiah 1, then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. Before you came forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. Oh, no, that's something. That kind of almost sounds like John the Baptist. So here you have something. This is unusual. This man, before he was even born, God had already decided he was going to be a prophet. Now, you notice what he says. He said, Then, then he said, I, then, then said I, Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am but a child. Now, that sounds like something Moses did, but I don't think that this is what he really meant. I think he was just saying something, anything, to try and get out of it. Because what was really going on here? But the Lord said unto me, verse 7, Say not that I am a child, for thou shalt, go, for thou shalt go to all that I shall send thee, and whatsoever I shall command thee, thou, speak in, thou shalt speak. Be not afraid of their faces. Ah, there's the real problem. It wasn't that he couldn't speak. He said that, yes. But what was really in his heart? Well, God says, don't be afraid of their faces. Now, why would God say that if that were not the case? That's one of the, one of the important things in Bible study uh, I, I have noticed, and I don't know whether it seems like so obvious, maybe that's why people overlook it, is if God says, don't do something in a book, well, the reason he says don't do it is because either A, they were going to do it, or B, they were already doing it. They're planning to where they were already doing it. Well, doesn't that make sense? I've never once, when, I, when my kids were little, when Cheryl and I would go out, the few times we'd go out, I never once told my kids, especially my middle one, don't you pick up markers and write on the wall. Now, why would you tell her that? You would tell her that if she had a marker in hand. But would you tell them that if they weren't going to do it? With little kids, you know, <laughs> that's what you're saying about pouring gasoline on the fire. That's what you do with kids. <laughs> you, can, you don't do that. But nonetheless, so you see that in here. And then he's going to say, uh, again, uh, verse 17. God's still talking to him. In verse 17, Therefore, gird up your loins and arise, and speak unto them all that I shall command thee. Now, he's kind of repeating himself. But be not dismayed at their faces, lest I command, command, confound thee before them. For behold, I have made thee this day a defense city, an iron pillar and a brazen wall, a brass wall against the whole land. How about that? Whew. 
against the kings of Judah and the princes thereof and the priests thereof and the people and against the people of this land. And they shall fight against thee, but they shall not prevail against thee, for I am with thee, saith the Lord, to deliver thee. Pastor, how would you like to get a call to the ministry like that? <laughs> Can you see why these men would be afraid? He, he knew this, but then God says, yeah, they are going to come after you, but I'm going to protect you like a brass wall. And so God did protect this man. Sometimes it looked pretty rough toward the end of his life. He was in some pretty difficult situations. Now, so he did, uh, he did have some things. Now, one, in his early, one of his early messages, if you look at the second chapter, he says something interesting. I don't think I've ever seen this. And so uh, Jeremiah is more, Isaiah seems like he's more, um, what would you say, esoteric, more, more flowery. He, it's, it's harder for him to say stuff, whereas Jeremiah and Ezekiel, when Ezekiel's not doing goofy things, he had all these. He had to do all these illustrations with, with himself. But Jeremiah seems like he's pretty much straightforward. He's just a real simple, say exactly what he means. And look at the second chapter, verse five. This is one of the. This is this is the first recorded message. Now I'm going to guess. I'm going to go out on a limb and say here that this may very well have been the first message. Although I know this book is not chronological, but even if it isn't the first message, it's still stunning when he says this, verse five, Jeremiah two. What iniquity, what perversity have your fathers found in me that they're gone far from me and have walked after vanity and become vain? What perversity have your fathers found in me? That's a pretty blunt statement. What twisted thing about God? You know, pastor is talking about things being fair and how the world looks at it. So these people are saying it's God's not fair. In fact, you find in, in Ezekiel that they, people do say the way of the Lord is not equal or is not fair. So they were thinking that. And so they, they thought God wasn't fair. What twistedness have you found? It's not fair, apparently. So you've got some really interesting things. Now, in his life, he's going to have a lot of opposition. And we notice, as you look down, uh, his first message is that really he does say that Judah, the southern kingdom, actually, if you read through this, you find he accuses them of surpassing the wickedness of the northern kingdom. Now, that's important because the northern kingdom went into judgment, went into exile in 722, and the southern kingdom hung on until 586. So there's, there's an interesting thing there. Why was that so? You know, I, I have to say that might be because of grace, and there might have been just a few righteous people in that southern kingdom to keep it. But so when you look at it, what's impressive, and, and you see this hinted at in other places in the prophetic writings, is that actually Judah became worse than Israel. Now you say, how is that possible? Because when you remember, Israel, when they started off, if you remember, their first king was Jeroboam. And the first thing Jeroboam did was to prevent the people from going back to Jerusalem to worship with the thought that they would go back and they would want to go back to the kingdom and they want to go back under their king and be one again. He put up two golden calves. He led them straight into idolatry. Now, how could you beat that? Judah did. I don't know how, but they did. Really, probably a lot of it has to do with that one king, Manasseh. And if you, by the way, if you want something interesting, I did find it, and I didn't print it up. I, I, I could probably send it to, to Joyce. But there is an apocryphal book called The Prayer of Manasseh. Now, I don't know if there's any, I don't know if there's the slightest bit of truth, but it's fascinating reading because if it was even close to being true, it almost sounded like something he could have said. That he finally realized who God was, and it makes it sound like you almost might think that, was this actually a saved man at the end? Was he actually saved? And yet he still brought this destruction on his people? That's, that's an interesting thought to think about. If you look at in Second Chronicles when it talks about him and he realizes that, that was, Israel was 
the God of his people, and he was his God, and he did some reformations like some of the great kings, like Hezekiah and Josiah did. And this is Hezekiah doing it? Or this is, this is uh, Manasseh doing it? Was Manasseh saved, maybe? Right? You know, that's an interesting. I didn't bring it up, but it's something that it, it's crossed my mind more than once. I'm not sure what to do about it. Now, so you see that you see some of the things in the outline that repentance is the only hope for escaping judgment. And these are straightforward. You'll notice these things that are stated. Jeremiah's grief for coming judgment. There's no question. He does no, nothing obscure, nothing flowery or poetic. He just says, this is what's happening. This is what's going to happen. And then you'll notice, in ver- and let's go over to Jeremiah 12. Because Jeremiah, you can see this man's emotional. He's under a lot of strain. And uh, anybody that would be in a situation like this would have been in misery. But look what he says in verse 1 of the 12th chapter. This shows you how emotional this guy is. He had his ups and downs. And I remember a pastor saying on Wednesday that you think that the opposition doesn't affect you. Look what happened to Paul. And even he mentioned some of that tonight where it gets to you. And so this man, look what he says beginning at the 12th chapter, verse 1. Righteous art thou, O Lord, when I plead with thee, yet let me talk with thee of thy judgments. Wherefore does the way of the wicked prosper, and wherefore are they happy that deal treacherously? Now you just stop for there for a moment. He's preaching judgment on these people. And then he says, well, why are they still prospering? Isn't it kind of like he's saying, why haven't you judged them? Isn't that kind of what he's doing here? He's saying, they're, they're doing, your, your planet, you're growing them, and... He goes on and he, and he just he talks about how bad it is. And of course, God's answer to him kind of uh, puts him in his place. But so you can see that this man is, is a very emotional person. Now, one of the fascinating things he does here, and these are things that you really need to know about. Point number 16 on your outline. Look down at number 16 under the outline. You have a flashback. And that's why I say it's not in... This book is not in chronological order. I'm not sure whether the other prophets are, but this one clearly is not because if you read through it, you'll find this is a flashback. He's talking about somebody afterwards. He's talking about Zedekiah in, verse, in chapter 21. Then he goes back to Jeconiah, who's a couple kings before him. Now, what's so important here? Because you find that Jeconiah, one of the predecessors to, to Zedekiah, that none of his descendants would ever sit on the throne of Israel. Now, God told Jeconiah through Jeremiah, none of his sons would sit on the throne, but Zedekiah was not Jeconiah's son. So, Zedekiah replaced Jeconiah, and it says, now, Coniah, well, excuse me, Coniah, Coniah was the son of Jehoiakim. Okay, he replaced him, but he was the son of Josiah. So, he was not the son of of Coniah, or of Jeconiah. Otherwise, he couldn't have sat on the throne. Now, why is that important? Well, do you know who is a direct descendant of Jeconiah? Matthew. In the Gospel of Matthew, Joseph. Joseph, the husband of Mary, was a direct descendant of Jeconiah. If he had been the father of Jesus, guess what? Jesus would have had no right to the throne. But now when you check Mary and you go to the Gospel of Luke, you find out that Mary came through the line of Nathan, which was another of David's sons that was royal family, but Nathan's seat never sat on the throne. It was through the other line. And then when the kingdom was, dis- was taken out, they never got a king back afterwards. 
but his, but Nathan's line was would have been eligible to rule at any point. Any one of those sons could have taken the throne, and that's Mary's lineage. So he has his lineage through David, but it comes through Nathan, not through the Solomon who comes down and goes through Jeconiah, and bam. And that's important because now when Joseph and Mary get together, what happens? Can you see what happens? There is not going to be anyone else who could ever get the throne. Because those appear to be the last two. Mary was there. Joseph was there. Those two got together. The curse of Jeconiah, the father, the other sons, they wouldn't, his, his second, the second born, he couldn't have taken the throne if Jesus for some reason offered it to him. He couldn't because he would have been under the curse of Jeconiah because of his father. So I believe at this point, that's why this is important because this king, sets the, this king puts a limit. It's going to be the way that the Davidic kingdom, or the way the Davidic line is changed from the, from the ones that were there to, from the line that came through Solomon to the other line. And that's because, uh, really when you go back and read now, Jeconiah, the, the thing that puzzles me the most is I didn't see anything about Jeconiah that was that much worse than any of the other kings. But for whatever reason, we're not told why. This is one of those questions I'd love to have an answer to. But we're not told why. He just, just was picked out this way. Now, if you skip down a little further, here's another thing that you find out in Jeremiah. You wouldn't know this any other way, but point 19, you'll notice that Jeremiah reveals that Judah would not escape captivity, but they would serve 70 years under the king of Babylon. They would serve Babylon 70 years, and he is the only prophet that reveals that. You find that in the 25th chapter, and interestingly enough, Daniel later reads Jeremiah's prophecy, and he goes back to this and says, yeah, 70 years, so Daniel reached the point. So Daniel must have been really old when the 70 years was up. He must have been in his 80s or 90s. And he realized he wanted to go back to the land and get his inheritance. And so he believed this. So, but Jeremiah is the only prophet that really, really did that. Now, there's one other thing in the notes, and there's one thing I didn't put in the notes, but look at point number 26, or 28 rather. You have another flashback. You jump back because you've been dealing with the time of Zedekiah. If you look at verse 34, chapter 34 and 35 of Jeremiah, he's been talking about Zedekiah late in the rule. Then all of a sudden, in the 36th chapter, there's a flashback to King Jehoiakim. Now, King Jehoiakim was on the throne for 11 years. He wasn't much of a king. But he did something here, and this shows you, uh, Jeremiah had more influence. In, in the book of Jeremiah, he's the only major prophet or minor that you see all the interaction with the court and with the nobles. There's other things in the book where you can see that he had interaction with the nobles. They knew who he was. They put him in the stocks. They, they made fun of him. They threatened to kill him. And some of them finally stopped him at one point. So he had a lot more influence, a lot more input. But when he wrote the, he had a scroll written up of things that he said. And Baruch read it. And some of the king's servants took the book from Baruch, and they read it to, 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 uh, Zedekiah, to uh, Zedekiah, not Zedekiah, to Jehoiakim in the 36th chapter. Now, if you look at the 36th chapter, you can see what he did. This, this is just, uh, you talk about brazen hatred. I would have thought this would have been the man that should have been written childless, really. Of the two of them, I didn't see anything Jack and I did wrong, but this man, what Jehoiakim did, I'd say, that guy deserved to be childless. Now, it doesn't matter because he's not around, and he's not going to have a problem with that. But in the 36th chapter, let's see, beginning at, uh, 
Okay, uh, let's see. You find out the, the prince is back in verse 14. Uh, they, they took the roll from Baruch that you've read in the ears of the people, and they took it, and they took it into the king. Now, when you see it, and uh, let's see, going down to verse 21, so the king, this is, Zedek, this is, this is Jehoiakim. I keep saying Zedekiah, this is Jehoiakim. So the king sent Jehudai to fetch the roll, and he took the roll out of Elishama the scribe's hand, and Jehudai read it in the ears of the king and the ears of the princes which stood beside the king. So here they are. They're reading what he has said in Jeremiah. Now look what this king does. This, this is, I've never seen anything like this. And this king should have been the one that got the childish verdict. Now the king, verse 22, Jeremiah 36, 22. Now the king sat in the winter house in the ninth month, and there was a fire bur- on, on the hearth burning before him. And it came to pass, when Jehudai read three or four leaves, he cut it with a penknife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until all the roll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. Yet they were not afraid, nor rent their garments, neither the king nor any of the servants had heard these words. Then it says, nevertheless, there were some men that made an intercession. He wouldn't burn the roll, but he did anyway. Here he cuts up. This is scripture. This was the first. Now, of course, we find out that God, uh, that God told him later. He says, you're going to put more stuff in there. It's uh, verse 30. Thus saith the Lord of Jeremiah 36, uh, 20, yeah, 36, 30. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of Jehoiakim, king of Israel, he shall have none to set on the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out in the heat in the night to the frost. So it says, he shall have none to burn. Well, it, he's not given the curse of Jeconiah, just, but he said he's not going to have any to set on there. I will punish him for iniquity and his seed and his servants for their iniquity. I will bring upon them and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the men of Judah all the evil I pronounce against them. And so, verse 32, here's where it gets good. He burned up one roll, right? Well, let's see what happened. Then Jeremiah took another roll and gave it to Baruch, the son of Neriah, who wrote therein from the mouth of Jeremiah all the words of the book which Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire, and there were added besides unto them many like words. So <laughs> he replaced the book, but he added something to it. So the, the, the book you have here in your hands, Jeremiah, is this expanded book. But it's fascinating that this man had that kind of audacity, and they had no fear at all. Now, the king was supposed to. If you remember back in Deuteronomy 17, one of the things that the king was supposed to have done was make his own handwritten copy of the law, and he was supposed to refer to it. This guy didn't, did even better than that. He had somebody else's, and he burned it. I mean, so that's... So you have, now, there's one other thing before we leave Jeremiah, and I, and I hate to do this. Jeremiah has... Uh, well, there's one thing for sure we need to say is that Jeremiah is the first place that you'll find in the Old Testament... The, the new covenant that will be made for Israel in the, in the millennial kingdom. You won't find this anywhere else. You find it in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Now, that's not in your notes, so you might want to make a note of it. But Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 is a new covenant. And by the way, there are those who say this is the new covenant for the church, for the Christian too, because they misread the book of Hebrews. And so they, they come up with that conclusion. But let me ask you a simple question. Verse 31 of Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the church. Is, that, is anybody following me? Is that what it says? It says, with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Who do you suppose that refers to, Pastor? 
You can use all the imagination you want. No, I think pastor's where I am. It, so how would anybody want to say, well, what's going to happen is you go down through here and you're going to see some things that sound nice. Well, it says, not according to the covenant that I made when I took him with their fathers, the day I took him by the hand and laid them out of the land of Egypt. Which covenant they broke? That's the law of Moses. But now, here's where they're going to get down to where they like it. Verse 33, This shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts. My law. What does that refer to? I'm going to be literal. How about you? I would say it would be the Ten Commandments, maybe? Would that be a fair guess? If we're going to be literal? Otherwise, what are you going to do? What, what would you make this? Is it up to us to speculate, or should we take it as what, for what it says? Now, how in the world would, would God make a covenant with the church to put the law in their hearts if we're not supposed to be under the law? Pastor, there's another one for you in, in, your, in your contradictions. How would this be possible? But you'll find, folks, that people will allude to this and say, oh, it's repeated over in Hebrews. They misread Hebrews, and, and they don't see what he's talking about. Sometime, Pastor, I'll have to go there and, and, and discuss that because there's a mess there, and it's really not that hard to see that he's not saying you're under this one. He's saying this is going to be Israel's future covenant, which tells you the first one wasn't any good. If the law hadn't been so bad, there wouldn't have to be this covenant. That's what it says in Hebrews, essentially. But you'll notice it says the law is in inward parts. Now, people like this. Oh, the law. Well, they want us to keep the law, don't they? Doesn't this sound wonderful? Did you know there's a commentary that I have? And I, I used to give this out to guys in seminary. And it was on one page, and I printed it. It just had one paragraph for just for the effect. Across just one thing, it said, from this one commentary, it was a commentary of one of the, what they call Puritan divines. Now, I love that term, Puritan divines. What was, what was a divine? Was that like a candy? <laughs> I mean, it wasn't a candy. No, these were men that were, they were something special. Well, this one Puritan divine, you know what he said about this verse? When he saw Jeremiah 31, 31, he says, whole commentary said this, they knew that they knew the dispensation or the new dispensation for the church. The new dispensation for the church. Do you see a church in your folks? House of Israel, house of Judah. Does that equal the church? If you can do that, where do you stop? Where do you stop? Once you have started such a goofy thing, where do you stop? Well, well, two, two other things quickly about Jeremiah. Jeremiah is the last prophet to, to the southern kingdom. And he's the only one that records, and you can see that a little bit later, down in, in, uh, toward the end of the book, in chapters 40, let's see, oh, 41 through about 44, you have, and it's, it should be in your outline. Well, it's a historical account of Jerusalem's Falls, point number 30, but in there you have the only detail of what happens to the remnant of the people that were left. We know from the other writings what happened to the ones that were taken off into deportation. What about the ones that weren't taken? There were some left, poor, some of the poor people were left. Well, Jeremiah tells you what happens. They wanted to go back to Egypt. So you can read about that there. And so the other thing is, too, I really think it's what makes him fascinating is that he also wrote a letter, and I, and I almost forgot to say this, but Jeremiah uniquely did something else. He wrote a letter to people in Babylon, and it's his point number... Uh, let's see, what point was it? Uh, he, he, let's see. Points, oh, point six, I think it's point 16. No, no, it isn't. He wrote a letter, and I don't forget where it is in my outline, where he, oh, wait a minute, there it is, point 22. 
Jeremiah wrote a letter to the Jews already in exile, and he told them, plan on staying. No one else ever did that. You, know? there were, you, you will find that there were some false prophets who did send some letters later that tried to say to the people, oh, you're going to come back. There are false prophets. Oh, you're going to come back. Within two years, you're going to be back. Jeremiah wrote a letter says, plan on staying, folks. Dig, dig wells, plant vineyards, build houses, give your sons and daughters to marry, within, oh, of course, within Israel, and plan on staying, folks, because you're going to be there a while, 70 years worth. So that's Jeremiah in, in a nutshell, and uh, there's so much more we can say about him, but you can read him, and on to page 22, what about Lamentations? Boy, I'll tell you, this is the, the, this is the eulogy. Uh, you notice I put in there, Lamentations is Jeremiah's eulogy over Jerusalem, because as far as he's concerned, it's done. Now, he knows they're going to come back, but somehow I don't think he ever saw it would be the same. So, it's, you know, initially, at one point, this was actually, in some of the Jewish, earlier Jewish copies of the Old Testament, this was just tacked on to the end of Jeremiah. It was separated later. I think the Jews did it themselves, and of course, we see it that way too. And you can see, really, the, the, you, when he, through this suffering, what is important about this suffering is that he shows an enormous amount of emotion, but you know one thing? He doesn't lose sight of the facts. He doesn't lose the objectivity because you'll notice Jerusalem is desolate, point number one, because of her wickedness. Now, he bemoans the fact you read through there and he bemoans all the terrible things that happened. But the message still is clear in there that it's in this situation because they did it to themselves. Second chapter, God's anger at Jerusalem's wickedness brought destruction. In a nutshell, that's what that's about. Now, he's, the whole way through this, you'll find that there's sorrow. There's an enormous amount of sorrow. But... He still knows the facts. And despite all of his sufferings, Jeremiah's faith is unmoved. Now, here is the bright spot. Of all the things in Lamentations, I don't think you would have ever expected to find this. But in, in, the, in the book of Lamentations, you, you know where we got that song from, Great as I Faithful is, don't you? Well, we got it out of Lamentations. Could you believe that he would say that? Well, look what he says in, in, Jer- in, in this is Lamentations chapter 3. And we're not going to say too much more about this book. But you can see that this man remained objective. Even though he had sorrow, what I like is he didn't question God's right to do it. He didn't question God's righteousness. And this shows his faith was good. He still bemoaned the fact. He, be, he wailed for the people that were killed. But it's kind, I, I kind of understand what it's like. When my brother passed away uh, about a year ago, uh, I had some sorrow. But you know what? I was angry with him for being so stupid. When we left my father's funeral years ago, we got, in, we got in the hearse to go back. My dad died of lung cancer. My brother got in the car, pulled out a Pall Mall 100 and lit it up. And I thought to myself, you didn't see a thing, did you? You fool. He did it to himself. And so I was angry at him. But he, he brought it on himself. I was sorrow, sorrow. I had sorrow. But you know what? I didn't lose my objectivity. He did it to himself. I didn't say, oh, God, why did you kill my brother? No. My brother did it to himself. I never lost my objectivity. And that's exactly what you see in this man here. Because look at what he says. You can see his objectivity. Verse 17. Start right there. Uh, well, let's read verse 16. He's also broken. This is uh, Lamentations 3, verse 16. He hath also broken my teeth with gravel stones. He hath covered me with ashes. And thou hast removed my soul far off from peace. I forgot prosperity. And I said... My strength and my hope is perished from the Lord. 
remembering my affliction and my misery, the gall would, the misery, the gall would, and the gall, my soul then still remembered in me and, and, it, and is humbled in me. Then I recall to mine, and therefore I have hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we're not consumed. Because of his compassions, because his compassions fail not, they are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. How in the world could a man say this after witnessing all of this destruction? He just got, he just got through saying, you knock my teeth out with gravel. No, you'll find, this, this shows you in the Old Testament, the people of Israel, pastor said it. Here's another case in point. Look how emotional it is. I don't think that Jeremiah was sitting in the city chewing on gravel and having his teeth fall out. I don't think he did that. I really don't think he did that. But that's how he felt. And so when you read the Psalms, folks, be careful. What is said is not actually true is what happened. It's the description. It's the true description of how that person felt about what was going on in their life. Because you'll find David, for example, said several times, the waves went over his head. Well, to my knowledge, David was not a mariner. He didn't go out to sea. But he felt like he was flooded over, like he was swept away. And that's true. That's a true description. That's exact. It's true how he felt. Now, it may not be factually true, but it's true of how he felt. And so here you have this man. He's saying, you've broken my teeth with gravel stones. Now, I don't think that he was sitting there chewing on gravel. I don't think, I don't think gravel tastes very good either. Well, anyway, so looking at this, you can see that Lamentations, all we have to say about that book is that this man remarkably even though it's the most sorrowful book, it's also remarkable in the sense that this is one of the rare instances in the Old Testament where you saw somebody did not lose their perspective. They did not deny or question God's right to do what he did. They stayed objective. They said, you brought it on yourself. Yeah, you had this happen. It's terrible. And I, I hurt them. Wow. But you did it to yourself. Oh, this is awful. All these people. But you did it to yourself. And that's, that's important. That's important because you don't find that. Well, you don't even find that very often today with Christians, do you? How many times have you heard somebody say when a, when a believer dies, 87 years of age, oh, he died so young, why did the Lord... <laughs> I've heard stuff. Haven't you heard stuff like that? I mean, that's how ridiculous we can be sometimes. You know, he's, 80, you know, he's 94 years of age and he can't see and he's blind, he can't walk, he's in a wheelchair and he can hardly hear. No, why did you take him, Lord? Oh, my goodness. Uh, some of this is a unique. Con- you see, you see, there are some lessons out of the Old Testament, some of which are a little bit, a little bit uh, more lighthearted than others. Well, what about this man Ezekiel? We have to go tearing through this man Ezekiel, and boy, I wish I didn't have to go through him so fast because Ezekiel. Here again, you have another prophet that he couldn't be more different from Jeremiah. Right? The, the three major prophets are not—they're not even similar, really, except that they have the same God. Because this man. His life, his ministry is just chock full of these illustrations of things he had to do. You realize he had to lay on his side, for one, on one side for 90, day, for 90 days, one day for, for each year, and on his other side for 390 days to signify the, the, the wickedness of the people. He had to build a tile on a, on a brick. He had to build a, re, a replica of the city and have siege mounts against it and everything like he's building a little Legoland set to show the people. I think I'd rather preach. Would you, Pastor? I don't know. Building Legos, building Legos to show people how bad they are doesn't sound like a lot of fun. But this man, he has more of that. Now, but he has got some of the most remarkable things about him. Uh, for one thing, at the very end of the book, he has the only description in the Old Testament that you'll find about the Millennial Temple. And without this, you would not know 
anything about the millennial temple, you and I would have to assume that it would be just like Herod's temple, which was basically a few bells and whistles on top of what originally was there when, when, when Solomon first built it. But we would assume, it, but when you get to there, you'll find out it is not even anything like it. And I, I do have a, I know I sent it to Pastor, I, he, we uh, have pictures of it, and uh, perhaps if, if you remind me, I can print out some of those, or if you have the time, you can print out the copies of Ezekiel's Millennial Temple. It's entirely different than anything you've ever seen. It doesn't even look similar. You wouldn't know about that without this. Now, Ezekiel's prophecies are the most unusual of all recorded Old Testament prophecies. His famous vision of the wheels in the first chapter has been widely misused as a reference to the extraterrestrial. I dare say there are more unbelieving scientists and more unbelievers that know something about the book of Ezekiel than any other book, and that's because they like the wheels. And the best known was the book written by Eric, Eric von Danken. His, the title of his first book was The Chariots of God. It was based upon Ezekiel's prophetic vision of a celestial chariot. Van Daniken believed the vision that the prophet described in the first chapter was actually an extraterrestrial spacecraft. Woo-wee! Here we go, folks. You thought you've heard it all. Well, there's another one for the collection. Now, uh, so his vision begins in, in, in chapter 1, verse 4 through 28, and it's the only time that, it, that uh, it's not the only time, really, that Ezekiel has visions of God's glory in cherubim. Ezekiel refers, now you'll notice we have in here, Ezekiel refers to, glo- to glory 18 times, second only to the Isaiah's 19 occurrences. Ezekiel's vision of the dry bones... As a prophecy of resurrection, it's the only one of its type. That's in, in Ezekiel 37. That's an interesting point. And he also has the only recording that you would not know about this, not even in, the, I don't think you even see it in the book of Revelation, where Ezekiel records the, the record of a future invasion by Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal in, in Ezekiel 38 and 39, along with being the only description of the Millennial Temple. Now, Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, you'll notice there's a footnote, because if you read the King James, it has chief prince. It calls him the chief, uh, what is it, how is it worded? But it's, if you check, and, and this is a matter of a little bit of Hebrew, and so unless you use Hebrew, you're going to have to kind of trust me on this one. But it's, uh, let me see how that's worded. Mm. Let's see, I'm against the Ogog, chief prince of Meshach. Verse it, and in Jeremiah, Ezekiel 39, verse 1, it says, I am against the Ogog, chief prince of Meshach. Now, that word for chief, it is Rosh. It's the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. That's what it should be translated as. It's the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Now, why is that important? Because in ancient history, Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal were places that if they were due north, of Jerusalem. And if you draw a lat- on the latitude, did you know that the latitude that goes through the city of Jerusalem comes within a couple miles of Moscow? And it talks about the army coming out of the, ex- the, the extreme north. There's no doubt who it is, but you don't know that until you read what you have here. And there's some interesting things in here. You look in, in the 39th chapter, and it's going to tell you there's going to be some, there's going to be apparently some nuclear holocaust. If you read through this, you can see, for example, in, in uh, Ezekiel 39, <clears throat> verse 11 and 12, It shall come to pass in that day that I will give to Gog a place of graves in Israel. Now, this is after they get firebombed. Somebody's going to firebomb them, and I believe it's going to be the United States, among other people, for, for several reasons. But 
Uh, it says, I will give Gog a place of burial of graves in, in Israel. The valley of passengers on the east of the sea shall stop the noses of the passengers, or stop the noses of the passengers, and they shall bury Gog and all his uh, multitude in the, in the place they shall call the valley of Ham and Gog. And seven months shall the house of Israel be burying them that they may cleanse the land. And uh, it says, Gain the people of the land shall bury them, and it shall be renowned, and the day I shall be glorified, saith the Lord. And they shall sever out men of continual employment to bury those with who remain on the face of the earth, and to cleanse it after the seven months. And, and the passengers that pass through the land, when, when, verse 15, when they see any man's bone, they shall set a sign up until the barriers have buried it in the valley of Hamangog. Now, why would you put a flag by a bone? You know why you would do that? Radiation, radiation contamination? You have special men to bury it? I believe this is something, when you put it in context, there's going to be fire that's going to rain down. I'd love to go into it, but we just don't have the time. But there's going to be fire that rains down on, on the land of Rosh, and there's going to be, they're going to be killed as they come, and it's going to apparently be with nuclear weapons. So they will be used again. They will be used. I believe that's here because otherwise, why, why would they be putting a marker by a bone? Now, I know there's uncleanness and so forth in Israel, but they would bury their own. That wasn't a problem. You'd put a marker by a bone if there was a reason to do it, like something like radiation contamination. They would still be radiated and it would take them seven months to do it. They'd have people. You'll notice it said back here that they had, it says they shall sever out men of continual employment. People will do that for a living. That will be their job. So this is pretty serious stuff. So you would not know this. And I believe that, and we just don't have time to go into it all. But I believe that this nation, Russia, they're going to come down in mid-trip, and you don't find this anyplace else. They're going to be destroyed by nuclear weapons because you see them burying people in this particular fashion. That's not the normal way they bury people. They didn't just go around finding bones and putting a flag on them. That, that's not the way you bury people, ever. Not in the Old Testament, not today. Well, what can we say about Ezekiel? Oh, there's, there's, there's some other things. Uh, Ezekiel has so much symbolism in it. We, we could talk about that. And one of, one of the uh, most important features of Ezekiel, along with the Millennial Temple, is the 28th chapter. Here's another thing. Without the 28th chapter, beginning 11, verse 11 through verse 19, you would not know something about Satan. Would you believe it if I told you Satan was once a righteous being? He was once righteous. Would you, you wouldn't know that any place. You, you'd have to see it here. You, you won't find it any place else. Did you know he was once righteous? Did you know he was once the, the figurehead in the government of God before there was a human race? Did you know that? Ezekiel 20, 11 through 19. We could go into that. It'd be fun to do sometime. We don't have time. Maybe someday we'll do that. There was a being there who was called the, the, the cherub that overshadowed. And it says covered, but that word for overshadow, it's a word that means to shine, to be above something. He stood above everyone. He stood above everything in the mountain of God back in Ezekiel 28. He was the big shot. He was the ruler of the whole system. He was a chief executive officer under God over the spirit beings because it was before the human race. Did you know that? There was a time God in God's program there weren't humans on this planet. Someone else was here. Now, when he was put out of his office, and this is just an aside, just, I want you to think about this for a moment. Satan was the chief executive officer. All the angels would report to him. 
just like now they report to the, to the Mount of Congregation. I believe at that time they reported to him. Every one of those angels knew when he was deposed. Everyone knew he was thrown out. How do you think his reputation was? Everybody that knows him, ha, 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 look at you, pal. The shame. This was a being of pride. This man, this being had more pride because it says, well, let's look at Ezekiel 28 for just a second. You have to see this. Because this, this being was paid so much homage. He was a righteous being. And I think what lifted his heart full of pride, now this is just my guesstimation of it, but just imagine, if what is said here is true about him, then it's equal 28, I'm going to 38, it's 28, I should have said, if I didn't say that. If what is true, if what is said is true about him, I could only imagine that angels would innocently, when they reported to him, at times some of them would, 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 would remark about how gorgeous, how, how beautiful he was, how magnificent you are. And I guess it's just like anything else, like these people in show business, they hear about how wonderful they are, and after a while they start to believe it. That's when they get in trouble. Well, that's when he got in trouble too. What does it say about him? Well, let's begin looking. And, and, and this is interesting because in the first verse it says, take up a lamentation on the prince of Tyrus, who says he's a god, but God says you're not, you're a man. But then he says in verse 11, he goes to the king of Tyrus. Now the king is over the prince. So the prince was there who was humanly known as a king, but he was actually an underling of this one who's called the king. Son of man, take up a lamentation on the king of Tyrus, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, You seal up the sum full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You are the benchmark. It has the idea of you are the standard by which others could be measured. You were the perfection above perfection. You were it. And then he says, You have been in the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the diamond, the topaz, the barrel, the onyx. Man, this guy had a fancy office. Talk about an office for the view. You can have that. Look what he had. All these, these, these. It says, "You are the anointed cherub that that, oh, that verse fourteen that covers." Which is really, the word should be translated overshadows. And I could, if I had time, I'd show you how it's used that way. But it is used that way. He overshadowed. What did he overshadow? The stones in the garden? Maybe he overshadowed all the other spirit beings in the government of God. In other words, he's this. This is telling you he's the CEO. They all come to him. Now do you understand, when he gets deposed, think about this, when he gets deposed and every being in the universe knows it, his pride is wounded. Would it surprise you if I said that his whole mode of operation since that day has been revenge, revenge, revenge. I have been humiliated. I want revenge. Would you believe it's that simple? I'd say it is. I'd say it is. You know why I would say so? You go through the scriptures, folks. And you look and see, if you ever see him do anything, number one, anything that's positive, number two, anything that benefits humans, and number three, anything that's for anybody besides himself. What I see as I go through there is that every time he appears, he's trying to destroy, interrupt, contradict, undermine, derail, whatever you want to say, the program of God. The only things I ever see him doing are things that are destructive. Now, why, why would you, what would you, somebody doing that, what would you say about them? They're just out for revenge. It's that simple. This great being that had the plug pulled on him got thrown out, publicly, publicly embarrassed in front of all the angels in the universe. He wants revenge. And that's, there you see it. And he was, so this was, this was a great being. He was a righteous being at one point. Now that kind of seems strange though, doesn't it? 
And there's one other thing in here I, I want you to, to see. You see in verse 17, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You've corrupted your wisdom by reason of your brightness. There it is, see? You've corrupted your, your, you've corrupted your wisdom by reason of your brightness. You were so beautiful, it turned your head, just like Hollywood. Isn't that something? Nothing's new, is it? <laughs> your heart was lifted up. You thought you were hot stuff. Now, there's one other thing it says in here. In verse 18, you've defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities and by the iniquity of your traffic. Now, he was selling a bill of goods. He had some traffic, some merchandise. He was selling a bill of goods to angels that if they followed him, they would become higher than they were. He started with the principalities and powers, the lowest ranks, and I believe he offered them a chance to move up, maybe be thrown in dominion. Guess you lost. So he sold them a bill of goods. But that's not why we're here. You keep reading. It says, uh, and, and therefore I will bring forth a fire in the midst of thee. Now that statement right there is important. Therefore I will bring forth a fire. It's, it's, a, it's a causative verb. It says, God says, I will cause a fire to burn within you. Now you know what that is? This is one of the more, this is one of the almost ironic, almost, you could almost maybe feel sorry for Satan for about a tenth of a second. It says, God's going to cause a fire in the midst of him. What happens is every time you turn around when Satan tries to do something, he gets so close to succeeding, God pulls the plug on him. You realize that the flood, there were only eight human beings that weren't contaminated in their bloodline. There were eight human beings left out of maybe millions on the earth. Eight, he was within eight of destroying the whole human bloodline. And what happened? God pulled the plug on him. He gets, he gets Adam and Eve to sin. I've ruined it, I've ruined it. God provides salvation for them. If that's not bad enough, what did God provide for Satan? There is no salvation. Do you see what God did? He's burning a fire in this one. So Satan's trying to get even with God, and God just keeps baiting him, and that fire burns hotter and hotter. And you see it today. Satan is no, I would say if anything today, Satan is probably as hot or hotter than he was back here. Because everything he's tried, it's always failed. Oh, he tried to kill Christ. Remember that? Didn't work, did it? If they had known, Pastor was right. If they had known, if they had known about it, and Satan left this one slip, oh no, we put him on the cross, and look what it did for these people. So he not only misput, not only goofed up by putting Christ on the cross, but he brought blessing to us. And so everything Satan does turns wrong. So what is that doing to him? He's burning and burning and burning, and God is doing it to him. God is just playing this. Oh, read the, if you read the book of Job, Job 1 and 2, read it again, look at it, and see who plays who. Who gets, who gets taken in on that deal? Who gets hoodwinked? God? Read it closely. God hooks Satan into doing something, and it falls flat. And I'm sure Satan was just all kinds of tickled about it. That's what it says. So, you wouldn't know these things, so this book is just, just an immense treasure. Uh, we could say so much more about it. Our, our time is up. We want to leave time for questions. I'd love to say more. You've got notes in here. Uh, and uh, just sometime, perhaps, we'll go through some of these things. Or maybe we can, uh, can cajole the pastor into uh, doing a series on this. You never know. Uh, just the last thing on, on, on page 23, you can look, and there is something there. Uh, there's, a, there's a footnote that I, that I found. It, it comes out of uh, Kylan Dalich, I believe, is the one. It's, it's uh, yeah. On, on point number 31 on uh, page 23 under this outline, Gog's invasion and destruction, 
and this is a quote, Magog is the name of a a people mentioned in Genesis 10-2 as descended from Japheth, according to early Jewish Jewish and traditional explanation, the great Scythian people. Now, in case you don't know who the Scythians were, they were people out of the north. And by the way, they were considered the lowest scum of the earth because it's Jew, the Gentile, or or the Scythian. There's one place that's used where there's groups named and the lowest group of them on after you get to the bottom of the barrel, you dig underneath it and you find the Scythians. That's who these people were. Interesting that they were not well thought of. But so that's, you know, there's no doubt that it's Russia that's coming down. And so you wouldn't, there again, you wouldn't know that there'd be a Russian invasion in the middle of tribulation. You wouldn't know it without this. You wouldn't know about, you wouldn't know about the tabernacle. And you wouldn't have seen so many, oh, you wouldn't have seen the glory leaving the temple. You wouldn't have seen, oh my goodness. You wouldn't have seen so much about cherubim. You see more about cherubim in this book than you'll see anyplace else in the Old Testament. So this is a rich and wonderful book. So when you read the Old Testament, expect to be blessed. There's a lot that you can learn. And there's a lot of good things to know back there.